You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. It's good to see y'all. My goodness, I have been uh, out for a bit. It is good to be back in here and with you as a church family. I spent the last week in Florida with my family on a beach, just enjoying some time, some deposits together. And then I've got one last little outing. I leave tomorrow morning and pray, heading out with 10 pastors from uh, the North Texas area. And we're going to go hiking in Colorado, pray for two things. One, don't get mauled by a bear. Uh, And then two, that uh, nobody has to carry me like Frodo or Samwise Gamgee uh, up there. Uh, Because when you get a bunch of pastors together, crazy things begin to happen, especially when they drag you out in the middle of nowhere and leave you for dead. So that's next week. Uh, But in the meantime, I'm here. It's so good to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Judges. As we continue, we are about week five, week six into our Judges series. And if you're just joining us, one, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And this is such a timely and incredibly painful book to walk through. But there's so many amazing things that I think the Lord wants us to see in this book. Judges is a book in your Old Testament um, that covers roughly about a 400-year period in Israel's history. And, uh, and it's a crazy history. It's this crazy roller coaster cycle that goes on for 400 years, just swinging back and forth from obedience of God's people to disobedience of God's people. And what you typically see is there'll be about a 30, 40 year stretch where God's people are walking in obedience. There's peace in the land. The people are serving God all is well. And then the godly leadership of that day dies. And as soon as they die, it's like leaving a bunch of teenagers alone in the house while the parents go away on a vacation and just all kinds of chaos breaks loose. And God's people instantly begin to turn away from God. They forsake God. They start turning and worshiping idols and they start becoming enslaved to those idols. And and all of a sudden God gives them over um, to those idols and it does not go well for them. Much persecution begins to settle in. And as the oppression gets greater on God's people, they begin to cry out for deliverance and they cry out for mercy and they begin to repent. And God hears their cries and God, who is so always eagerly seeking to lavish his grace and his mercy upon his people whose hearts are his, begins to relent and God then raises up an unlikely deliverer, a judge. A judge in this, remember, is not like courtroom judges, more like military leader, political leader, spiritual leader in some sense to help raise up and deliver God's people and bring about freedom from their oppression and bring peace once again to the land. And that cycle will go on for a little bit before it then just hits repeat all over again. And so where we're gonna find ourselves this week is on the heels of one of those cycles. So turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 11. That's where we're gonna be this week, Judges 11. And what we're gonna find leading up to chapter 11, give you a little bit of a background context, there is a wicked ruler leading Israel at this time, named Abimelech. And he is wicked, and he is just wreaking havoc upon the people of God, and that leads them to sin and idolatry once again. And so God has given them over, and they are enslaved to their enemies now for about 18 years. 
of oppression and persecution due to their sin. And there comes a point in chapter 10 when the people begin to then cry out and they confess their sin to God and they ask him for deliverance. But God says in chapter 10, which is interesting, I'm not gonna forgive you. Because essentially what they're doing is they're, they're confessing their sin, they're acknowledging it, but they're unwilling to repent. They're like the child who just got busted and they're sorry, not because of what they've done, but simply because they got exposed. So God goes, I don't want that. I don't want just lip service so you can have my blessing. I want your heart. I want intimacy with you. I don't want sin as a barrier between us. I want you to not, not only confess it, but I want you to turn from it and turn back to me. Render your hearts to me and then I'll bring peace upon this land. And so inevitably that happens. The people finally repent towards the end of chapter 10 and God relents. And now in chapter 11, it's time for Israel to go to battle against their enemies who've been oppressing them. But they need a leader. They need a savior. They need a rescuer to lead them in this battle and overpower their enemies. And the question is, who is the deliverer now? Who will be the next judge to rise up? And you see this most unlikely of candidates in chapter 11 named Jephthah. Jephthah. And let me tell you this. This is a powerful story. There's really two acts. If this were a play, there's act one and there's act two in this. This is gonna start off as a powerful story of redemption. And I want you to know right now before we dive into this story, if you are one who has ever been a place or you're in a place right now of immense brokenness, where you are experiencing or have experienced pain and suffering because of your past mistakes, either the sins that you've committed that have brought collateral damage on your life in your own rebellion towards God and against his will, or maybe it's a pain and suffering that has come at the hands of someone else their sin, their rebellion that has actually victimized you, injustices that have been committed against you that have brought about pain and suffering. If you are one who has walked through any of this, if you have tasted of that, and if you're walking through it, especially right now, you and I both know it's easy in those moments to begin believing the lie that because of what I've done or because of what has been done to me that I am just damaged goods now. I am beyond repair. I am beyond God's ability to save, redeem, restore, heal. And God certainly has no more future plans for me. I'm washed up. It is easy to believe that lie in those moments. But what I want you to see through the story of Jephthah is our God is a redeemer. This is what he does. He takes broken people and he makes them whole again. He doesn't allow our past mistakes, even the decisions that we have made that have been in rebellion towards God. He doesn't even allow that which has been done against us to become our identity. He is our identity. And he is the true deliverer who wants to take hearts that are rendered to his and transform them for his glory and our good. And you're gonna see that in Act chapter one of Jephthah's life, how a faithful God works through an unfaithful people in broken circumstances. Now, Jephthah here is eventually what will be the ninth judge in Israel's history in this period. 
And his name means the one who opens. Because essentially, he's going to become the one whom God will use to open the door for Israel's freedom, deliverance from bondage. He will be their deliverer. And he's about to open a can, as we're going to see here in just a moment, on the battlefield. And what you'll see in the first half of verse 1 of chapter 11 are some qualifications that will actually make Jephthah be a likely candidate to be a deliverer for Israel. But it's in the second half of verse one that you're gonna see some reasons why he would actually be an unlikely candidate. You see this in verse one, Jephthah the Gileadite. Now Gilead was a region in Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan River, what is today modern day Jordan. And it is a mountainous region there kind of in central northern um, Israel on the, on the eastern side there. And it is from the tribe of Manasseh or Manasseh. And we know about Manasseh and we know about the Gileadites from reading in scripture that they were known for their great valor, great strength, great skill, great courage, great bravery on the battlefield. This is what the Gileadites were known for. So it makes sense that if you're going to go looking for a military deliverer, Gilead's where you're going to want to go find one, which would explain the next description there, which is he was a mighty warrior. He was a valiant warrior. He's mighty. He was strong. He was a conqueror in battle. Jephthah had a reputation for this. He had an impressive resume of accomplishments on the battlefield. Outwardly, he was everything that you would expect in a deliverer. He's probably everything a young boy wanted to be growing up in that day. Certainly, this guy would make the lineup for the next Avenger uh, coming out. This is who this guy is outwardly on paper. But like most of us, he's got a kink in his armor. And the kink that he has in his armor is his past. And you see that the second half of verse one. But he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And so his mom is a prostitute, which immediately would have made him unclean in Israel, disqualified him in Israel. His dad, which we're gonna learn in verse two and following, was already married to another woman. So his dad is an adulterer. And so Jephthah, is the illegitimate son of an adulterous da- adulterer dad and a prostitute mom. And in verse two, his dad went on to have other legitimate sons with his original wife. Notice what happened down the road. Things are gonna go from bad to worse for this kid. In verse two and following, Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, so his half, half-brothers, They drove Jephthah out and they said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. And so Jephthah fled from his brothers and he lived in the land of Tob, which is a wicked, wicked place. And he was there because worthless fellows, literally translated would be criminals, thugs, they collected around Jephthah and they went out with him. And so imagine the scene. 
Externally, this dude is impressive. He's got everything going for him in terms of being a valiant warrior who could lead Israel in what they need to come out of this period of bondage. But behind the scenes, he's the illegitimate illegitimate son of a prostitute. His dad's an adulterer. He's going to end up being persecuted here, as we saw, by his half-brothers, despised and rejected. He's stripped from his rightful inheritance to his father's estate, which means in that day, you're a dead man walking. You've got nothing, no livelihood whatsoever. And now what should Jephthah have done right now in this moment? Before we go any further, what should Jephthah have done, just like any of us who are trying to follow Christ, who are trying to follow hard after God, when an injustice happens against us and totally change the fortunes of our life. When we are victimized by somebody else's sin that is not our own, that's brought collateral damage upon us, what should it do? It should have driven us, it should have driven Jephthah straight to this heavenly father the one whose grace is sufficient for every pain and brokenness in our life and the one who sovereignly holds the rightful authority to bring about recompense where injustice has occurred. He should have turned to the Father in this moment for his healing power and his justice. But instead, Jephthah does hear what so many of us, and myself included in my past, have done when these wrongs have been committed against us or when we've made even our own mistakes and rebellion, he begins believing the lie that this is now his identity. This is just who I am now. I'm damaged goods. I'm of no use to anyone anymore, especially God. I'm beyond God's ability to save and restore. And so instead of allowing these sins to drive us to the Father, instead, as we'll see with Jephthah, he uses it as an, as an excuse, as a license to run from the Father and to dive headlong into his own rebellion, his own sinfulness, and ultimately ends up blaming God for all that's going on in his life. This is exactly what Jephthah does here. And so he runs away from his home. He hits the streets. He's gonna join a gang. This is a gang up in the mountains there, and he's gonna join a gang and eventually become the leader of that gang and he's gonna spend his days as a thief and as a criminal. He's basically the Old Testament version of Walter White from Breaking Bad. This is who Jephthah is. He's just a mountainous thug running the streets up in, in, uh, in tow. Now, right there, for all practical purposes, Jephthah's story should be done. I mean, especially in, in this, this time period of Israel's history. If you're him, if you've got his testimony in that day, you're unclean, you're done, you're outside of God's covenant people, you are damaged goods now. And again, for any of us in this room who've come from a broken past or even a broken present like that right now, where you have suffered greatly, either from your own sin or the sins of others, I want you to see what's about to happen here. This becomes a powerful story of redemption that a faithful God has the ability to turn around the hearts of an unfaithful people and redeem their brokenness for good. And I want you to notice in verse four through six, I'm just gonna summarize here at this point, things back on the home front, again, they go from bad to worse. The Ammonites are now closing in around Gilead. 
They're closing in around God's people. And so the people are frantic at this point. They start searching high and low everywhere for a deliverer who could lead them to victory against the Ammonites. But nobody is found who can fit this qualification. And so in verses four through six, they decide, you can imagine the family and the friends of Gilead are getting together and they're going, man, who should we ask? Who can lead us in battle? Who would God raise up for us? And at some point, somebody somewhere goes, hey, what about Jephthah? Remember him? And you can just, you can almost just feel the circle going, no, not Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, the adulterous dad. No, the, the gang leader in Tobe. No, not that Jephthah. And so somebody goes, no, no, I think you need to consider Jephthah. And so sure enough, what happens here, and I, I, I want you to pause for a second though, because what are they thinking? They're going to ask Jephthah. They're going to go approach him and they're going to ask him to lead. What do they want from Jephthah? Are they approaching Jephthah because they're sorry for what they did to him, his family members? Are they approaching Jephthah because they realize that they've taken a kid from a broken home and they've mistreated him? And now they want to invite him back home and reinstate him as a noble leader in the community to help lead them, that they'll submit and follow the rest of their days. Is that what they want? No. They're coming to Jephthah just like the Israelites came to God back in chapter 10. Not because they're sorry for what they did, but simply because they're in a bind and they need some blessing. That's the only reason they're approaching him. It's like a guy dumping his girlfriend because he found some other girl that's better and he goes to her and she doesn't want him. And now he comes back to his original girl and goes, hey, boo, remember me? Yeah, you know I love you. You know I never do you wrong. You know you're my forever girl. You know that, right? And she's like, heck no, I ain't playing. I ain't getting played like that. You're just wanting me because I'm the best thing for you right now until something better comes along. No, I ain't playing like that. And so Jephthah sees right through this. And in verses seven through nine, Jephthah essentially says, if I come back, it's not just so you can use me. I want to know that you're sorry for what you did to me, that you're, that, that you're in this thing for the long haul and you're willing to follow my lead from here on out. In other words, Jephthah is gonna refuse to grant them deliverance without true repentance. And in many ways, this is a microcosm picture of our relationship with God. God is not just a lucky rabbit's foot for you and for me. He's not just a genie's lamp that we run to when we're in a bind so he can just pour out his blessing on us so that we can go return back to normal. No, no. God refuses to grant deliverance without true repentance, true faith in him, being willing to follow him. Otherwise, he will not grant, just like Jephthah here, he will not grant rescue without also taking his rule. So it's got to be both. And so in verses 10 through 11, the people repent. And they agree to not only let Jephthah be their rescuer, but also their ruler. Not just their savior, but their Lord and their judge. And so right there, that's the end of Act 1. A great story of redemption. God, God finds this broken man right in the middle of Tob takes this broken man, restores him, and exalts him to even a greater position than before, showing him your past is not your identity. I am your identity. Now, there is more to say on that in just a moment. We're going to circle back around to that, but I want you to see 
where act two comes into play here. Starting in verse 12 and following, what is this awesome story of redemption really takes a nasty turn here. Jephthah returns, he gets seated as their judge and their deliverer, and he begins by first trying to reach out to their enemies, the, the Ammonites, through diplomacy. So the first thing he's going to do as their judge is try to strike a deal without going to war. And it's here that we find out that the Ammonites, they're mad at Israel because they think that Israel stole their land. And so in verse 12 and following, I'll summarize this. This is what Jephthah does. He sits down with them and goes, no, this isn't your land for three reasons. Number one, it was never your land. Originally, it was the Amorites, not the Ammonites' land. So check your spelling. Number two, God actually gave us this land rightfully by defeating the Amorites. And number three, that battle happened 300 years ago. So why are you all of a sudden coming here 300 years later thinking this is your land all of a sudden when it's not? And so nonetheless, the Ammonites, they won't agree to diplomacy. So they got to head to battle. So Jephthah puts on his armor and it's go time. But what happens here in verse 30 changes everything. Jephthah begins to make a vow to God that he was never supposed to make. Jephthah is about to do right before this battle what many supercharged, roided up dudes do, athletes do right before the big game. When they sit around, and they start making promises to God. If you give us victory, God, we'll sell everything we own. Give it to the poor. I'll take my next kid and name him God is awesome. Just let us win. They start writing checks with their mouth that their, their lives and their abilities can't cash. There was some crazy story years back I saw of dudes that got together for a fantasy football draft and they're all hyped and amped up for the season and they thought it'd be cool to make a bet that whoever comes in last place has to get a tattoo of Justin Bieber's face on their thigh with unicorns surrounding it. And everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. They all get supercharged and they make this bet. And that's real cool at the draft party until about 16, 17 weeks later when you're in last place and fast forward 20 years later and every time that you get out of the shower, your wife's like, seriously, Justin Bieber again? Like we make these promises in these heated up moments that we never had any business making. And Jephthah does just that right here in verse 30. Notice the vow that he makes. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, now stop right there for a moment. Why is he even making a, a conditional vow right now? If you will give the Ammonites into my hand? God already promised in chapter 10, if you just give me your heart and repentance, the battle is mine. I'm going to defeat them. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I will defeat your enemies if you trust in me by faith. There should be no, if you'll only give us this battle, then I will. Shouldn't be any of that to begin with. God's not a liar. The promise maker is a promise keeper. You don't have to owe him anything in this moment. God doesn't need any works to be added to his grace. 
God doesn't need to be paid off for a victory he has already promised that will come for free. But Jephthah makes this vow anyways. He says in verse 31, here's the vow. If you let us win, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return from battle in peace from the Ammonites, then I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, to be fair, Jephthah probably has in mind right here when he's returning to his land, one of the animals that he'll see, one of the livestock that will be the first thing that he sees approaching his property coming out of that door there. Surely he never could have imagined anything else coming out first. Now, if by chance he has in mind one of his servants that might be coming out to greet him, then we have something horrifically wicked going on here. Something that is adamantly opposed to Deuteronomy 12, which said that God's people were forbidden human sacrifice. And if that's what this is, then this is exhibit A, that that Jephthah is synchronizing his Judaistic theology with the cultic practices of the Canaanites around him in massive compromise right here. So sure enough, verse 32 and 33, God gives them the victory. And when Jephthah arrives home, look what he finds in verse 34 and following. Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out. She came out to greet him with tambourines and with dances for this victory, and She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither a son or a daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. He said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Just sit in that for a moment, y'all. Now, this has special weight for me. I've got five daughters. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. What are you thinking right now? Now, surely what you and I would be thinking, if indeed this was a sacrifice that he has to make here, I'm going to start backpedaling in this moment. Oh, God, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I didn't say whatever came out my door. I said my door. I'm going to sacrifice my door, not what comes out of the door. Like, I'm going to be backpedaling, figuring out some way out of this. But again, if this is human sacrifice that he's agreed to, which is abhorrent already, as awful as that is, it's weird because he also has some sense of integrity here that he's got to follow through and make good on this promise. Now, here's the deal with this vow. Uh, Scholars, theologians are split as to what actually this vow is. One interpretation is that this is exactly what we think it is. This is human sacrifice, which is why we're gonna see in verses 36 and following that his daughter is gonna go away for two months to weep over her virginity. And those who are in this camp that he's about to sacrifice her would say that she is weeping over the life that she is never going to have. She's never going to be with a man. She's never going to marry. She's never going to have kids. And it goes on to say in verses 39 and 40 that 
women would come up on the anniversary of this vow every year for years to come and mourn over this sacrifice. Now that's one straightforward interpretation. There are others, and I just need to be fair, there's others who interpret this differently, who who view this as a vow of consecration, that whatever would come out of the door, he would dedicate via a burnt offering, meaning he would give this thing up in consecration to the Lord and into temple service. He's basically handing his daughter over in temple service. It's a vow of celibacy, which is why those in this camp see her weeping over her virginity, not her life. And the women are simply just mourning that. What, what, whichever interpretation is here, and I, I think the straightforward rendering appears to be the most reasonable and tragic, whichever way, it's tragic. This is one of those things in the Bible that you read and go, am I really reading my Bible right now? Is this really happening right now? Could God, could God use a guy like that who, who does something like this? And the sad commentary is that essentially he does to his daughter what was done to him. An injustice was, create, was, was committed against him and he just generationally passes it on to his daughter now and commits this injustice against her through a vow that he should have never made. Act two in this story is awful. It's awful. And what you're gonna find out as the story ends in chapter 12 is Jephthah would go on to rule for only six years. And it's the first time in this entire book where there is no mention of a peace in the land that accompanied his rule. It's the only one of the cycles where peace isn't mentioned on the back end of this. Now, I think there is a ton of implications that we could draw from this story, but two in particular that I just want to leave us with here this morning as we examine the story of God's faithfulness in the midst of the unfaithful story of Jephthah. The first is what we talked about a little bit already. It's a story of redemption. Act chapter one is indeed powerful. The beauty that God can take that which is broken and he can make it whole and not only make it whole, he can use it again for his glory and for people's good that he can take our brokenness and through his redemption, accomplish his great purposes both in and through us to not waste our pain, but use it for something good. Some of you know and have tasted that. Some of you in here have suffered greatly from your own sin, your own decisions that have brought havoc upon your life. Some of you in here are walking in suffering and pain because of tragic sins that were committed against you. And there has been untold amount of anguish that has come from the injustices that you have suffered from. And some of us are walking in here because of our past, because of our present condition right now, in shame and condemnation and despair, feeling like damaged goods, feeling like we are beyond God's ability to restore. And you need to know that could not be further from the truth of who God is and what God does. The story of Jephthah is a micro story of the Bible, which is pointing to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The one whose business card says, I am the God of second first times. I am the God who makes things new again. I am the God that heals the broken. 
that binds them up and uses them for my glory and their good. And we see this all throughout Scripture. The God who redeems Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made Christ who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus has done on the cross for us by shedding his blood for us so that we through faith in him could be made new by the life-giving power of the spirit who now indwells in us by his blood covering our sins, covering our unrighteousness and giving us his righteousness to make us new again, to make us clean again. Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. From the east to the west, our sins have been cast aside. It's not your identity anymore. Your identity is in the blood-bought salvation of Jesus Christ, who now owns you, controls you, and makes you new again. It's in him Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And he not only redeems you, he restores you. Paul also said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. For by my power, not yours, but by my power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Your weakness is exactly what God wants to use to flex his strength and show off his glory and restore you and heal you. And he doesn't just leave you there, but then he uses us. God can take shattered diamonds and he can take those pieces, put them back together and use them to sparkle again. Paul wrote to the Corinthians as well in 2 Corinthians chapter one, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort others who are in their afflictions, any affliction with a comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, I'm gonna to minister to you in your brokenness and I'm gonna heal you up. So in your weakness and through my healing, you can now be a source of comfort to others who are walking through that. And I'm telling you that that's not just theoretical here. I've tasted and seen that in my own life. I've shared the story before of both my wife and I, both have come for horrific broken pasts. I grew up in a shattered home with a dad who took off and had an affair with his secretary and ran off with her and left my mom and three boys and me growing up with a giant vacuum in my life, wondering who I am, wondering what, was it me that drove him away? Was it something that I did that made my dad not wanna be with me anymore? That made my dad not want to love us and stay with us anymore? Was it something I did? And carrying that weight, that guilt and that shame only to be introduced to Jesus Christ and show me who my heavenly father is and the restoration that he has for me, that all that time he's always been with me. And he allowed this to happen because it drove me to him so that I could see that he's my true father and gives me the opportunity through the healing that he's done in my life and the healing that even got to happen later on down the road between my dad and I, and to see that now carried over so I can help minister to other men as well and women who are walking through brokenness with their families. God didn't waste that pain, and that didn't become my ultimate identity. 
I'm not just the son of Roger Sumlin. I'm the son of the almighty God who is in the business of making broken dudes like me new. And even though my rebellion led me for a season into all kinds of immorality, uh, sexual immorality and idolatry and worshiping in so many different ways other than God, God forgave my sin and he cleansed me. He made me new. I share the story about my wife whose life started off with her mom getting ready to head down to an abortion clinic to abort her. And on the way to abort my wife, felt conviction to turn that car around and go home. I think about all the generations. I think about my wife, my daughters, who would not exist today had that happened. And God halted that. But then I, my wife's story, she went through a divorce in her family and relocated with a new stepfather, was then sexually abused by him and by others. All the while thinking she is damaged goods, all the while thinking that God can't use that kind of broken past, that God is done with me, that I'm damaged goods, that this just must be my identity right now. And then led her to a path of promiscuity and shame and condemnation, further cycles in there only for her to have an encounter with Jesus Christ in college who washed her clean, who said, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'm gonna take your story and I'm gonna redeem it. I'm gonna do a good work in you and I'm gonna clothe you in my righteousness and my grace. And I'm gonna use you to minister, as 2 Corinthians 1 says, to take the comfort that I've given you and go give it to other women who have walked through abuse as well. God never wastes pain. It is a story of redemption. And that is not a grace that was just available for Jephthah or available for me or my wife. That is a grace that is available to anyone in this room. He can make you new. No matter what you've done, the arms of God are not too short to save. You are no exception. You are part of what God does. And we learn that from Jephthah. It's amazing to me that Jephthah goes on He's mentioned in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It's not just a bunch of awesome, great heroes who walked in perfect righteousness. It's a list of broken people whom God redeemed and used for his glory. And Jephthah is there. And so are anyone who's in the blood of Christ. But act two is a reminder of not just the redemption of God, but the, the second takeaway that I think we gotta walk away with is it's a reminder of God's grace. God's grace isn't just what saves you. It is also what sustains you. It's what sanctifies you. God doesn't save you by grace and then leave it up to you for your own works to finish out the story. No, God's grace is from beginning to end. Jephthah's story reminds us of our continual need to believe fully in the grace of God and rest in it to not feel that we gotta add our own works to what God wants to do, to make these crazy vows for God to accomplish what God already said he would accomplish apart from us. All God wants is what, he, what David confessed in Psalm 51 after he had an affair with Bathsheba. He just wants a broken and contrite heart. That's all he wants. He doesn't need your promises and your conditional statements and your vows. The if-thens don't belong in this relationship. 
He simply wants your heart rendered to rest in his grace so that from beginning to end, he will get the glory in your life. And Jephthah's story points us to that. I want you to know, wherever you find yourself today, God's grace is sufficient for you. It was sufficient for Jephthah. It is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the reminder of who you are. This isn't a story about Jephthah. This is a story about you. Jephthah is not our hero. None of these judges are a hero. You are our hero. And so God, for anyone who's walking in pain and suffering in this moment, anyone in this room who feels like they're beyond your ability to repair, to restore, to use, would you drive that lie from hell away from this place? And would you let them see the truth, God, that no one is beyond your ability to redeem and to restore. And that is done by your grace and your grace alone. And I pray, God, we would be a people who would yield ourselves to you fully. In Jesus' great name, for your glory, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.